We will begin a new series this morning. I'm calling The Inauguration of a King. The Inauguration of a King. We'll be considering how the events described in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, represent Jesus' inauguration as the King of the world. Not merely the King of the Jews, but the King of the world. Recognizing something really quickly by way of introduction, okay? When God made Adam and Eve and said, take dominion of the garden, take dominion of the earth, he was awarding, if you will, without using the term, he was awarding to Adam the kingship of creation. In the fall, that kingship was forfeited over to Satan. Which is why Satan is often referred to as the prince, right? The prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air. The prince of Israel was what the kings of Israel were properly called. Not king, not like King Jesus, but prince, overseer, steward. In the same way, Satan was awarded by the fall of man in the garden, the stewardship of the earth. He has dominion over it. Never outside the boundary of God's providence, but nonetheless, it was awarded to him. Which is why when, we'll see later on, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, one of the temptations was, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. It was a real offer. Because Satan is the prince de facto of creation because what was given to Adam was forfeited to him. You with me so far? What we'll witness over the coming weeks in verses 9 through 15 will represent Jesus and his kingship, his rightful claim of creation being begun. We'll see it inaugurated coronated, initiated, which of course we recognize at the cross of Calvary, the work was finished, tetelestai. All that needs to be done has been accomplished, where after his resurrection, he says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. King Jesus, okay? That's where we're headed. If you will, these events represent how it begins. If you will, begins in earnest, in the flesh, in history. Is that reasonable? That's reasonable enough, right? Well, then let's read, beginning in verse 9. In those days, what days? The days where John was baptizing at the Jordan, right? Last week, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have once in 52 weeks in a calendar year to spend a few moments together cherishing your word, seeking to draw from it nourishment for life, seeking to find in it who you are, the revelation of yourself, seeking to be defined by it, seeking to glorify you and worship you in the observation of it. May you bless the effort for, Lord, we are feeble. The mouth of your chosen messenger is feeble. His mind is scattered. Our minds are tainted with sin. Our wills, our desire to follow you wholeheartedly is often divided. Our inclinations, sinful and selfish and fearful. And so, Lord, we beg of you as needy sinners who are incapable of the effort on our own, empower our minds to understand. May your spirit dwell in us richly to the point that it is burning, that you are burning in us unto faithful obedience, sacrificial, faithful, uncompromising obedience. And Lord, may you accomplish these things simply by the faithful exposition and careful consideration of your holy scriptures. For as we read the Bible, the God of all creation speaks. And so in the words of the prophet, we say together as a a body now in prayer, speak, Lord, or your servant is listening. May it be so among us today. For Christ's sake and in his name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we considered the significance of John's baptism, his message, right? He was baptizing, he was immersing, and he was also declaring the pending arrival of a new king, and therefore the new kingdom about which Jesus speaks in verse 15. A new king is coming, a new kingdom is being inaugurated, and guess what, hearers of John the Baptist's message? You are not worthy to be part of it. There's a terrifying message. A new king is coming, the kingdom of heaven is being established on earth, And you, in your sinfulness, are not ready. You're not worthy. You are unfit for this new kingdom. And you, therefore, need a severe change, symbolized by the most extreme of ceremonial actions, full-body immersion into the waters. We lay you down once in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, At that time, they probably went straight down seven times. 
That would have been John's baptism unto repentance. What they were being compelled to do, the phrase we used last week, is what we are all being compelled to do by the message of the prophets of the scriptures, which is to be honest with yourself about your spiritual condition. A, we are either unredeemed, far from God, at war with him, and find ourselves squarely in line with those listening to John the Baptist's message, unfit, unworthy to be part of this new kingdom. Or B, we are redeemed and yet wrapped in unredeemed flesh, still warring with our sinful inclinations. There is no third option. So to be honest about your spiritual condition is to lay before you these options. For the thinking person then, the baptism of Jesus represents a real problem. I'm going to say that again. For the thinking person, the baptism of Jesus represents or presents a real problem. Come, sinners, and be baptized. Jesus comes and says to John, baptize me. For the thinking person, the baptism of Jesus represents or presents a real problem. The Christian faith and message is based on the sinless perfection of Jesus. Take that away, and what do we have? Answer, nothing. If Jesus wasn't the sinless sacrifice foreshadowed by the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 17, foreshadowed in the Passover lamb, foreshadowed in the entire Levitical system as the the lamb or the sacrifice without blemish that is slain and offered in the place of the sinner to pay the consequence sin has earned, if he is not that, if he is a sinner who needs to be baptized unto repentance by John the Baptist, then Ben Shapiro's take on Jesus is the correct one. Jesus is just another zealous Jew who mounted an an insurrection or a rebellion against the Roman Empire and was killed for his trouble. End of story. But we don't believe that. We believe that the testimony of the scriptures is accurate, that he was tested, Hebrews 4, 15, tested and tempted and tried in every way like us, but without sin. That is. Jesus is, according to the testimony of John the Baptist himself, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why then was Jesus baptized by John? Baptized as John had been preaching, a baptism of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. Why did he do that? And why is it such a significant event that it is included in every gospel account, unlike many details, which are not? Such a significant event that Mark begins his gospel account, his, his, if you will, story of the person of Jesus. He begins it with this event, not his birth, 
not the angels appearing to Mary and Joseph, not Herod slaughtering everyone trying to find this new king, not the flight to Egypt, which fulfills prophecy, not his being raised in a place called Nazareth, which according to prophecy is something about the, uh, the place of Zebulun or Naphtali. None of that. Just he's 30 years old and he gets baptized like every other sinner who's out there getting baptized. Why is it significant enough that it's included in every account? Mark begins his story of Jesus this way. And the replacement, get this, the replacement for Judas Iscariot had to be one, a disciple, who was with Jesus and the rest of the disciples from his baptism to his ascension. That was the critical test. Well, something significant must be happening at this baptism that I would argue most of us, me included, have overlooked for our entire Christian lives. Theologians consider this action to be akin to Jesus' coronation day. You know, the opening scene of Frozen, where Anna wakes up excited because it's coronation day. She did not know that they had 8,000 salad plates. You remember the song? Is that enough? Is that enough, Frozen? Jesus is being announced by the one with authority to be the son of God, the king of the earth. And as such, his baptism represents, ready, number one, Jesus identifies with sinful humanity. Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. This is a fascinating time to consider this theological concept. The cultural phenomenon of identity politics, or specifically people identifying as something or someone, we need to understand this is such a powerful deception because it is a theological reality. The phenomenon in which we are living is such a powerful deception because it is a theological reality. To identify as something or someone is, I think we can probably all agree on this, just broad scale taking in the culture. To identify as something or someone is to stake your very life on your perception of oneself. Reasonable? It's to stake your life on the perception of oneself. Now, in popular culture, this means if you feel so strongly that you are someone or something, then you choose to put those perceptions onto yourself to such a degree they define who you are. Critically, nothing in the physical outside objective world must change for this to seem as true to you as the air that you breathe. 
in theological terms, it means Jesus, despite the physical objective reality that contradicts it, puts on the identity of fallen human flesh. Not that he believes himself to be sinful, no, but rather he stands in the place of sinners. He identifies with you. He stakes his life, if you will, on the perception of himself. And in salvation, you identify with him in that you stake your life on your perception of yourself. You with me? Now I will back this up textually, but let us understand something, friends. This might be the most powerful evangelistic tool that we will have in our arsenal in this day. We are so far removed as a Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina from the the identification narrative. So many layers separate us from those who would say, I identify, and I'm not making a joke, I identify as a cat, or I identify as a asexual person. I identify as a woman, even though I stand here with you, bearded and appendages and everything. We are so far removed from that because as Christians, we recognize that there is objective fact and then there is fantasy. And we have staked our eternity on objective facts. We're not interested in entertaining fantasies with no objective foundation. So we can't even begin to relate to these people. We are so far, so many steps removed. What would we say to the person who identifies as having no sexuality whatsoever or they are asexual, non-binary? We would say to them, well, what about Jesus? Well, who is he? Well, he's the God of the Bible. He is the, 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 the God incarnate. Based on what? Based on the scriptures. What are the scriptures? They're just words on a page. Friends, if there's no absolute truth, if there's no evidence-based life, if there's no objective reality that is the foundation of reality itself, then friends, we've got nothing to talk about. Except, Jesus identified with fallen human flesh, and in salvation, we identify with him. He put on flesh, you put on Christ. It may be the most helpful means of communicating the gospel that we will ever consider in this time and place. Rather than putting on the identity of sinful urges, the gospel compels man to put on the identity of Christ. Nothing in the physical, objective world changes, usually. You don't glow, you don't radiate, 
I certainly didn't become six foot four when I became a Christian, to my disappointment. Right? Nothing changes in the physical world, though I would argue I can almost always see it in the eyes when a person is redeemed. The window to the soul, as they say. But you don't really change physically. And yet, he makes us able to put him on. He makes us able to put on Christ, to identify as something that we otherwise aren't, and there's no tangible evidence that would prove it. Not immediately, anyway. The most clear scripture on this is simply Romans 13, 14, which reads, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on and make no So that means I'm not this, I am that. In popular culture, to identify as LGBTQ or transgender or non-binary or any number of self-defined identities is to simply put on, scripturally, it's to put on the flesh that Paul says make no provision for. They're simply saying this flesh is me. Whatever deviant, naturally sinful perception of self that most suits the individual, I'm putting it on. In Christendom, we are called Christians because of the slang term, right? Initially, Christians were followers of the way. They were called followers of the way because of that famous verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so his followers were followers of the way. Until people started mocking them, saying, you're just trying to be like Jesus. You and your holiness, you and your separateness, you and your pursuing righteousness, and you know, you're not getting drunk, and you're not being crazy, and you, know, you, know, you're, you seem to you know, be generous and live for others. And you know, it's like, you're, it's like you're trying to be Jesus. You ain't Jesus, you bunch of little Christs. Oh, look at the little Christs over there being holy and being friendly and being generous. Little Christ equals Christian. Well, what are we doing in Christendom except instead of putting on deviant flesh, we're putting off deviant flesh and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are identifying in him. So I say again, the phenomenon of personal identity in popular culture is such a powerful deception because it is a theological reality. And it is at the heart of God's rescue plan for wayward humanity. Cleverly, Satan has so co-opted something that is actually so precious and intimate and meaningful and real and turned it into a deviant, defiant deception of the highest caliber. My children ask really good questions. Um, one of them recently asked us if Satan or if demons still inhabit the flesh of people 
the way that we have read as a family over and over again these various stories of demons inhabiting the flesh of people in the Bible, demon possession. And of course, it inspired a good, a good conversation. Right? And of course, we recognize a few things with that answer. You know, number one, you know, it still does happen. But it does seem to be happening less in this time and place than it did in the first century. The question then is just simply, well, why is that? Why is it less obvious? Why does it seem to be less manifestation? And the answer, the best answer that I can offer to my children when they ask a question like that is that I believe, as I look at the whole text of Scripture and all of human history, that the tactics of Satan have changed and morphed over time. I haven't spoken to a snake any time recently who was trying to tempt me to sin. Had you? You could argue, you could track the course of human history, specifically through the biblical account, and you could see almost like waves of activity. Satan works in this way, and then he works in this way, and he works in that way, and then he works in that way. And it's always a deception, but it's, it's a different form, it's a different type, it's a different way. And I would argue that today, while demon possession certainly does still happen, that today, Satan has learned and knows and has adapted his tactics of deception. And now he has done this. He has co-opted the putting on of an identity into one of his most effective means of deceiving, stealing, killing, and destroying. So I say again, Jesus identifies as human flesh, born to the sinner named Mary. All of this is to say, Jesus puts himself where he doesn't belong. Under the waters of cleansing, he's pure. Under the waters of judgment, he is just. Under the subjection of John, he is king. This is critical for our understanding. This was not a simple action on the part of Jesus, a passing thought, a clever method. Hey, everybody's getting washed, me too, why not? No, friends. Why did Jesus, the sinless king, get baptized? The answer is, again, to identify with fallen humanity, to stand where we could not stand, to act the part of the human as a human, just as he took our place on the cross and took on the wrath of God in our place, he takes our place in the waters of baptism. He identifies with the sinner and does what the sinner must do while he himself never claiming to be a sinner nor sinning in any way. Number two. We will recognize he did so Willingly. He did so willingly, meaning this was his choice. Jesus, we read, came. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The verb Mark uses here is in the active voice, meaning it was a purposeful journey 
out to the remote location where John was baptizing. You know, there's a picture up there, Daniel. Will you throw that up there? There's a little picture. It looks like some, um, some grass and some water. And Yeah, here you go. Now, to the best of your ability, what you can see here is a slightly muddy creek surrounded by deep banks and lots of grasses. This, friends, is actually what the waters would have looked like when Jesus was baptized, meaning the location and the aesthetics. It was out, it was away from the city, it was out in the wilderness, near a place called Bethany, which is not far from Jerusalem, but it was off the beaten path in the muddy creek of of the Jordan River. Now, there are times and places where the, where the river swells during various seasons and the river widens and the water doesn't look quite so murky, but this, this is the accurate depiction of what we should imagine in our mind's eye when we think of the man Jesus descending to the waters. He was not invited by John. He was not coerced. He came to this water from Nazareth. It's one of the great realities of a wedding, isn't it? Especially for men. Maybe women find this too. I don't know. Um, As you stand at the altar, men, and your bride comes walking up the aisle, she is coming to give herself to you, to commit herself to you before God and man till death do us part. She's coming Willingly, I think in most cases. She's coming willingly. I heard someone say shotgun wedding. I think in that case, it's the man who's coming a bit against his will. But what a preposterous commitment that she would come willingly and commit herself to you, smelly man, right? But in like manner, Jesus left his home in Galilee, made the 80 or 90 mile walk south to begin his earthly ministry, to be inaugurated as king, to rescue his bride, you, the church. He came willingly. Number three, he came purposefully. He came purposefully. Willingly, meaning he did this of his own volition, And he came on purpose. Matthew's account tells us that John was resistant. John didn't understand. Jesus had to tell him his purpose. John would have prevented him. This is is from John's account. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to, get this, fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You wish to be baptized by me? No, 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 I need to be baptized by you. What John is saying is, you are not the sinner who needs to repent, I am. I cannot do this thing you're asking me to do, Jesus. It's a lie. I will not, as the prophet of God, participate in the lie that you're asking me to do. You're asking me to dip you like the sinners. Can't do it. 
Can't do it. What was Jesus' purpose? Why did he insist? Was he admitting fault? Heavens, no. He told us his purpose. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? The word righteous comes from the root word judgment or justice. To fulfill righteousness is to fill what is to fill up to the brim what is required for justice to be met. To fulfill righteousness is to fulfill the standard, fill it to the top, everything required of a just God. That's fulfilling righteousness. He is, therefore, identifying with fallen creation, and get this, to fulfill all that is required of God, he is doing everything fallen creation must do. Everything fallen creation must do to be at peace with God, which includes repentance and perfect obedience. He will be cleansed in the waters of baptism, not for himself, but for you. He will obey to the fullest degree, not for himself, but for you. He would strip himself naked, descend into those muddy waters, and take the humiliating posture of one who is a rebel in need of repentance, a total change of mind, not for himself, but for you. Do you see the glory in this, Christian? Do you see how Jesus did everything you are required by God to do, but that you could not do perfectly, including, look at this, repentance? Think about it. Can you, in your totally depraved state, Ephesians chapter 2, you were once walking arm in arm to the beat of the drum of the prince of darkness, indulging the passions of your flesh. Can you, in your depraved state, repent perfectly of your own ability. Can you do that? Scripture says we can't. This is the beauty of the baptism. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them to me. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He did what's required of every man. He did it perfectly, which we could not do. When we put him on, we take on his perfect accomplishment of all of the standard, including your repentance. It's a great picture, friend. Because if that's not the case... 
if you heard the message of the gospel and you thought to yourself, yes, I need to repent. He's right. I'm a sinner. He's right. I'm guilty. He's right. I'm not perfect. And if perfection is what's required to be at peace with God and eternity for all, then, then yes, he's right. I need to repent. I choose to repent. If you could do that, who gets credit for your salvation? You do. Because you chose. Jesus lovingly would say, how dare you? <laughs> you did not choose me. I chose you. And in the waters of baptism, Jesus repented for you. When we repent, we put on his perfect repentance. He did what was required. He fulfilled all righteousness. Fourthly, Jesus is identified as the Son of God. And this is probably close to where we'll pause here. Number four, Jesus identifies as the Son of God. He identifies with fallen creation. He puts on the perception of self of fallen humanity in need of repentance and cleansing. He does that for you. And yet he also puts on, if you will, the identity of the Son of God, which is essentially title, King of the world. It is that equivalent with Adam, whom we spoke of earlier. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says he is the, the true and better Adam. He's the true and better king. He's the human who would live the human life as the, the governor of creation and yet not forfeit what Adam forfeited. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better prince of the world. And so he identifies as the son of God, even as much as he identifies with us sinners. While Jesus is born to the sinner Mary, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. What a marvelous thing God wrote into the fabric of creation in anticipation of his redemption. It takes the seed of the man and the egg of the woman, and from the two come the child. It's fascinating. We have five children, if you don't know. It's fascinating to look at my five children and to look at their faces and their, their body types and their, their sense of humor or you know, musical inclinations or not, right? It's fascinating to look at this like wild mixture, like, you, like God was playing Yahtzee every time we got, got pregnant. Just put the dice in there, it's all the different characteristics, you know. Some of them get, you know, this like risk-taking, brash, you know, and others are very, you know, you get like my face but her demeanor, right? Just this wild mixture, no two are the same. The more kids you have, the more you can see this world, sort of this mad scientist sort of stuff playing out. But what a remarkable thing when God wrote the fabric of creation and procreation that it would require the seed of the man and the egg of the woman and from the two comes the fertilized egg that represents the 
procreation of humanity. The egg of Mary, the seed of the Holy Spirit. It is the hypostatic union. He is two natures in one. Not in competition, not in confusion. Somehow, marvelously. So he is the, he, he puts on his identity as the, the seed of creation. But he also puts on the identity of the son of God. This is affirmed through three signs. Number one is point number five. It is the voice of God, by the voice of God. Let's read it again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Who's he? He is John the Baptist. That's who Mark is speaking for. That's affirmed in the Gospel of John. By the way, he gives John's testimony. John gives John's testimony. Mark reiterates John's testimony. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my son. Sort of like, and God saw that it was good, right? In human history, whenever a king is inaugurated, you will always find, get this, someone with authority, typically spiritual authority, declaring to the people of the realm, here is the new king. Are you doing a little like Rolodex of human history, like little nuggets and things you've seen and things you've read? Yeah. I encourage you this week for homework to read 1 Kings chapter 1. There's a fantastic, if you will, competition for the throne of Israel between two of David's sons as he lays dying on his deathbed. The older son, his name is, um, I want to get the pronunciation right, Adonijah or Adonijah. He sought to take advantage of the opportunity. Dad's sick. He's on his deathbed. If I can have a spiritual man declare me king, It'll count for something, and I can seize power. So, what does he do? He gets Joab, the commander of the army, and he gets a priest named Abiathar, and he hires 50 men, and they put on a big show, and they create a big ruckus, and what's going on over there? Come, the inauguration of the king, and oh, the king's being inaugurated. You ever seen Kung Fu Panda, where they're going to pick the dragon warrior? Suddenly... Poe, the protagonist of the story, he's so excited, they're going to pick the dragon warrior. Everyone, go, go, go. Don't pay your bill. Go. This is what it would have been like. What? They're inaugurating the king. Drop everything and run to the party. And Abiathar says, here is Adonijah, the new king of Israel. And all the 50 men who were hired are like, yeah, he's my favorite because he paid me, you know? He's got the commander of the army. If he can command the army, then he can subdue the people. He's got the voice of the priest, who is the spiritual authority, the highest spiritual authority in Israel. If he says, I'm king, I'm king. So what does David do? 
David hears about this. His wife Bathsheba comes in. Hey, you said Solomon was going to be king. David's like, yeah, God told me Solomon was to be king. Well, Adonijah is the king according to Abiathar and Joab and 50 men who they hired and a whole bunch of people who came to the party because the dragon warrior, right? So David says, all right, quick. He gets Nathan the prophet, the same prophet who called him out on his conspiracy and adultery. Nathan the prophet, he gets Zadok the high priest, and he gets one of his mighty men of valor. What's his name? Where is it? Benaniah or Benaiah. Another military general. And he has them gather the masses put Solomon on the throne, put the crown on his head, and declare Solomon is the king. What's the point? When a new king is inaugurated, friends, the highest spiritual authority places the crown on his head. For Solomon, that was Nathan and Zadok, the man who spoke the words of God, the priest in the temple, for Charlemagne in the 800s AD in France, it was Pope Leo III. For Jesus, it was the voice of God in heaven announcing his personhood, his place of authority, and if you will, crowning him with the crown of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is announced king of the world <laughs> by the highest spiritual authority you can possibly petition <laughs> the voice of God himself right well friends there are two other signs of course that we'll have to consider next week so let me end with just three quick quick points of application just quick things to think about and we're going to sing a song and call it a day I know you wish we had another hour together like this. Number one, is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection a story you believe in? Or is he your identity? Is it a story you think is true even a story that you believe the merits of? Or have you put on Christ and made no provision for the flesh? The demons believe and tremble. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. It's a sandwich. It's a package deal. Put on Christ Make no provision for the flesh. Christian, if you claim Christ, if Jesus is your identity and it's not just a story that you think is cool, guess what? You do not get to condone the sin in your life. You don't get to excuse it. You don't get to minimize it. You get to repent of it, weep over it, and be contrite and humble and broken before the Lord. End of list. Or else, friend, if you can come in this building every single Sunday, believe the story to be true, give yourself a pass as you entertain the sin in your life, I challenge you, friend, 
He is not your identity. It's just a story that you think is true, and that may count for nothing in eternity. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The evidence of you putting on Christ as your identity is there's no provision for the flesh. No excuses. We will be weak and we will fail. Romans chapter 7. We will fail until the day we die. We will not excuse it. We will not be able to condone our own sin. If you're harboring bitterness against someone else, you're maintaining broken relationships, if you're entertaining things on the internet that you're not supposed to be, if you're, friends, the list can go on and on and on of secret sins we don't want to deal with. If you can do that and be at peace at night, friend, be afraid that this is a story you think is true like the demons, but Jesus is not the identity which you have put on. He accomplished it in your place, and you put it on like a glorious gift and just say, thank you, Jesus. There's a difference. And so I challenge you, friend, to search your own heart and know the difference. Number two, I'd like us to just notice, just Jesus commands John, and John doesn't understand. John goes, this is, I don't get this at all, Jesus. I am not understanding. You want me to dunk you in the waters like a bunch of sinners? I, I can't do it, man. I don't understand. And Jesus says, you don't understand. I'm asking you to obey. Here's the question, friends. Do you obey or do you have to understand? If understanding is a prerequisite to your obedience... You're not a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus obeys when they don't understand. Number three. If Jesus would strip himself naked and put himself in the muddy waters and identify with fallen sinful humanity... And then later on, a few years later, allow himself to be stripped naked and put on the cross to identify with fallen sinful humanity. If he would do this for you, is there anything he's asking of you that is too much? You don't want to come up front. You don't want to be baptized in front of people. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to compromise. You don't want to you know, risk something at work. You don't want to... Jesus didn't do this for him. He was content. Jesus was happy in heaven. Out of the, the unity and the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit was all of creation born. He left glory to come down here. He would go without food for the next 40 days and, and feel that hunger pain. He would feel the eyes on him wondering, what in the world is this guy doing? Maybe he is a sinner. Maybe he is a kook. He would put himself in every compromising situation to take on himself the sin of man for you. He didn't do it for him. He did it for you. Now, of course, he did it for his own joy, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Of course, it was for the glory of God that any of this is done. 
It was for God's glory that he birthed creation and set forward the plan of redemption. Of course, it was all done for his glory. But friends, who's the recipient? You. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't do it for him. He did it for you. And, and so is there anything that he's asking of you that is too much? Are there hobbies that you need to dismiss? Are there priorities that pull you away from the assembly of the saints? Are there morning and evening habits that keep you out of the word? That keep you from prayer? That keep you from walking with him intimately? That keep you unaware of your own sin and sinfulness that you're entertaining passively because you're distracted? On the phone, listening to music, turn the radio up, never sit in silence with your own thoughts and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Wake up first thing in the morning, grab the phone, surf the web, play the games. Friends, I'm sitting on the second row with you. I'm asking myself these same questions. Are you being selfish with yourself and with your time, with your money, with your energy, with your resources? Are you pursuing things that are of only temporal value but have no eternal benefit? Are you taking every opportunity to share the gospel or are you being passive and selfish, sunglasses on, headphones on, in the store, out of the store? Why? Because those people don't matter to me. Is that you? Is it me? Is kicking all of that out of our lives fervently too much to ask? Well, I think that's the question for us today. And the hope is that we can just live in it with the greatest measure of honesty that we can muster and be willing to recognize that there is nothing, uh, nothing too great, no too, too high of a price, too sacrificial of, a, of an effort um, that is comparable to what Jesus did for us. Well, let me pray. And it's late, so we'll skip the last song. Um, but can we sit for one minute, for 60 seconds, in quiet um, reflection? Can we do that, please? <clears throat> I'll pray for us, and, um, and I'll allow us this moment, and then I'll conclude. And in a in brief prayer, and and as I do, I um, as we sit quietly, I I would just ask that you, um, you know, well, carefully consider those points of application. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your Spirit, who <clears throat> who convicts us. Um, you said in your ascension that I will not leave you as orphans but I'll send the helper and he will guide you into all truth 
And so, Father, um, you know, we ask now that your spirit would guide our too often wandering hearts into all truth. Make known to us where we are prioritizing other things above our king and how that is inconsistent with what we say we believe about who we are, about our greatest hope and joy. I pray your spirit would convict us now in this quiet moment of silence. Jesus, thank you for doing all that was required for man to be at peace with God. Thank you for doing everything that is required of us in our place for us so that we might be the recipients by faith through grace, by grace through faith, that we might be the recipients of all that you have earned, all of your peace, all of your joy, all of your power over sin, all of your effectiveness as an evangelist, all of your obedience, all of your love, all of your truth. Lord, you've made us recipients of these things and so much more by our salvation. And so to King Jesus, we say thank you. You May you um, reign in our hearts to the degree that you are the king of creation. In Christ's name we ask, amen.